Let's go ahead and pray before we're seated this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight, Lord, a time that we could gather to worship you, Father. And, uh, Lord, because of you and because of your gospel, we are more than conquerors and that we have overcome uh, just the sin that pulls at us and tempts us, Lord. We have victory through Christ and we can overcome, Lord. And, Father, we overcome so that you are glorified. And, Lord, again, we pray that you would just open up your word to us. Help us to continue to guard our hearts and minds as we talk through uh, this uh, teaching that is prevalent in so many places in our world today. And I pray that you'd guard our hearts and minds in that. Give us an understanding. And again, Lord, that we might preach truth for your glory. Father, again, thank you for all of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we do want to open up with just a couple announcements. Uh, So we talked this morning about some of the upcoming events, and I want to give you a little bit of a reminder about some of those things. And so, um, again, uh, don't forget, uh, home plate money is due. So if you did not sign up for that, please do so. If not paid for that, please do so. Birth and Beyond items are due as well. And so if you still need to drop something off, um, you are able to do so up until Wednesday. Um, and again, uh, if we have a need for that, please let us know. We can definitely work around that, try to help you out with that. Um, also want to let you know, Um, this coming Wednesday, there is no PM service, uh, with spring break and everything going on. So no Wednesday evening service. So please note that for children or adults. Um, also want to let you know that on Easter Sunday, there'll be no PM service as well. So the Sunday evening service of Easter Sunday, no PM service. All right. So a couple services, make sure you're time for worship and coming together to just kind of spend a nice one-on-one with the Lord. It's as if you were coming to just worship him, we want to invite you to be a part of that. Again, it's a very unique service, something we don't uh, normally do as far as the style of service is going to be, but you will uh, greatly enjoy it, I believe so. And so men's prayer breakfast is going on as well coming up. Ladies spring event is going on, so make sure you make note of that, ladies. Widow and widower's banquet is coming up April 29th, so make note of that as well, uh, either to serve or to get the word out there. And then also our skating event coming up on April 15th. Uh, Please make note of that. All right. If you have any questions on it, you can see Sandra. Again, we'd like to have all of that turned in, uh, money turned in, signed up and everything by uh, Easter Sunday. So we know that we have enough skaters to do the event. And again, that's a family event. So uh, mom and dad, anyone can skate. If you skate, it's $10 and that includes your lunch. All right. And skate rentals are included. So A lot of great things going on, a lot of exciting things going on. Um, I do want to encourage you, before we even get into tonight's uh, devotion, to be thinking about Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, Really want to encourage you to be praying for those two services. Um, We really want to ask the Lord to do a great work in and through our church, that people will obviously come to know Christ through those services, but also maybe get connected back into church for the first time in a long time. So I'm going to be praying for that. And so um, I know Sandra and I have been talking about the... Uh, the week of Easter, so Monday through Easter, we're going to be uh, praying and spending time doing that. So we invite you to be a part of that. Obviously, you can start now, uh, but maybe really that week, if you guys would join with us and really praying for uh, that Easter Sunday to be just an amazing time for God to be glorified. Um, what a blessing it's been uh, to see so many uh, coming out the last couple of weeks. Um, I was talking with, uh, obviously, Julie Johnson 
Uh, Terry Raymond has mentioned something similar with Sandra. Sandra and I have been talking about uh, just the, the kids' classrooms right now really seem to be just in a, a season of growth. And so we're so excited for that, so thankful for that. So let's continue to just pray for God to do what only God can do, all right? And let's be asking him to do that. So, um, all right, so we're going to be diving into our ninth commandment tonight. And so many of you know we've been studying through the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. And so we are on week nine. Um, actually, I think it's week 10, commandment nine, because the first week was like an introduction. And so we've been talking about this teaching that has kind of become more and more common in Christian circles, this teaching of progressive or liberal Christianity. And again, liberal, don't think necessarily politics, think individual. Think, I, if I can understand it, that's what scripture means. If I can't understand it, then scripture can't mean that. Everything is seen through a lens of how I interpret scripture instead of letting scripture speak for itself. Um, quick little review. I'm going to see... I just throw this out there. I don't know why I do this, but sometimes it's just fun. Um, what is the term for interpreting Scripture that is where I let Scripture speak for itself? There's a term in interpreting Scripture that means letting Scripture speak for itself. When I interpret Scripture, I go to Scripture, I let it speak to me. Like, it says what it means. I don't read into it what it means. It I, it just reveals what it means. What's, what's that called when it reveals it? I'm seeking for that in interpretation. Yes, ma'am. What's that? So the word is inspired. Yeah, the word of God is inspired. But there's a term in studying scripture and in interpretation. Starts with an E. Exegesis, right? Exegesis is where I go to scripture. I don't read into scripture what it means. Scripture tells me what it means. Okay. What's the, what's it called when I read into scripture? Eisegesis, right? So think of it like in a sense, like I isolate that scripture to make it what I want. Okay. I pull it out of its context and I make it say what I want it to say. Okay. So when we go to scripture, we need to practice exegesis. We're letting the scripture speak. Okay. Now we, we understand culture. We understand context. We understand historical references, but we let scripture declare that to us in progressive Christianity. It's eisegesis. I go to scripture with a predetermined idea. This has to mean this. Like, like if I predetermine in progressive Christianity, God is love. Now, is God love? Yes, but not at the cost of God being holy and just and all those things. But I determine God is love above all. Like there is nothing but God is love. And I just saw a video recently. I think it was actually yesterday of these two people were out of this church, beautiful older church. I have no idea what the denomination doesn't really matter. Um, I don't know if you're like me. I love when I drive through towns I've not really been in and I see like the downtown usually has like those older churches, beautiful churches. I love seeing those older, beautiful brick buildings, all the, the work with the brick and everything and the stained glass windows, so cool. These two people uh, were painting the steps of this church. Seemed kind of weird. Um, but they were painting the steps the rainbow color, colors. And so each step was a different color in the rainbow. And so this person apparently walks up and starts asking this woman who was painting. He said, can I ask you a question? And she said, sure. And he said, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? Now, I, I find those kind of questions really funny because what are they doing? They're painting steps, okay? So he walked up and said, what are you guys doing? And she looked, she goes, we're painting the church steps. Duh. Like, that's what we're doing. And he said, oh, wh why are you guys painting it these colors? 
And she said, well, we're painting it the rainbow because we believe God is love and God loves everyone and God accepts everyone and so on and so forth. And she's smiling and he said, well, but isn't God also holy? And she said, well, sure, but, but God is also love. And he asked her a couple questions. He says, well, what does the Bible say about God's definition of love? And this woman who was, I would, I would guess somewhere probably in her early 60s, seemed to kind of be familiar with this church. She literally said, I don't know. I don't know what the Bible says about that, but I do know this. The Bible says God is love. How that love's defined, how that's applied, she had no idea. She, her own words, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know the Bible says God is love. And he said, well, yes, God is love, but God is also just, and God is holy. And God says, this is this, and this is that. Like, marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible says. And she literally said, God is love. And she said it like six or seven times. Like, that was the end-all, be-all, done. God is love, everything you say, second in comparison. What is she practicing? I said, Jesus. She's pulling out, yes, there is a scripture, 1 John, God is love. We, we, she pulled that out, and this is now top. Anything else is in submission to this. This rules everything. I pull it out of context, and I make it say what I want. That's progressive Christianity. I predetermine that God is love. So if I come across a passage that seems to suggest something harsh, uh, critical of somebody else, draws lines around something like marriage, um, anything at all, that might make me go, well, there's now, there's some kind of a division here. Doctrinal division, saved, unsaved, whatever. I have to automatically go, either I reject that as scripture, that's not really God's word then, that's just opinion, or I have to twist and contort that scripture to fit God is love. That's Isa Jesus, and that's what's being practiced in so many ways. And so we've been doing this now, and I appreciate uh, someone said last week, I can't wait till we're done with this series. I can't wait till we're done with this study because I get mad every week. I just get more and more mad. I get that. I understand where that anger comes from because the reason I think believers get upset when you hear teaching like this is because to, to us that are in the Word, I'm not saying we're better than anyone because we're not, but when the Word declares something so clearly, we see it and go, yeah, that's what it says. And we submit to that. When somebody else teaches something contrary, to us, it's so obviously wrong. And then we also think this, that's leading them astray. And I think some of the anger I think a lot of believers feel about this teaching isn't that I'm right, you're wrong. It's, man, this is God's word. This sets us free. That leads you into captivity, bondage, and destruction. And my heart breaks for you. And you get angry. And I hope it's not at the person. Remember, we don't wrestle flesh and blood. We can get angry at the teaching, right? The, the things that are being taught because it's leading people astray. It's not setting anyone free. It's putting them into bondage. And so we're going to dive into this ninth commandment. And this is, again, from a book by Michael Kruger, who wrote a critique of an individual named Philip Gully. So Philip Gully wrote a book talking about kind of a confessional statement for progressive Christians, like things that progressive Christians need to believe Michael Kruger, a, a follower of Christ, wrote a critique of that. And so when we say these are commandments, this Philip Gully would say, this is something, this statement is what they believe. We're kind of criticizing that statement. Okay, we're critiquing that statement is what we're doing. So uh, the ninth commandment that we covered a while back, um, and again, I'll be careful in how we word this. Okay, just so you guys know, I will be careful in how we word this. Uh, we should care more about love 
and less about intimacy. So we should care more about love and less about intimacy. Now, Michael Kruger uses a different word there, but again, we're trying to be a little bit careful with our terms this evening. We should care, we should care about, I'm sorry, we should care about love and less about intimacy. Okay? We should care about love and less about intimacy. So already, what are we, what is number one? What is the first of importance? Love, right? Now again, we realized this last week. We cannot just see the word love and interpret it as we see love. Because I, I, I agree, we should be loving. We've said this every week. We should be loving. We should be loving as followers of Christ. But we have to define love as God defines love. Not as culture defines love. Okay? This is true in a lot of ways. Also in the negative, sometimes people will say, well, I love somebody if they're loving. Right? If they're a good person, I can love them. How do Christians love? We should love everyone. Right? That really nice neighbor who's always kind and always friendly, and that really rude neighbor who's not very kind and not very friendly, we should, in Christ, love both. We don't have to agree with both. We don't have to allow both to have influence. We don't have to go to both for counsel, but we love both. And if opportunity comes, we serve both. Right? That's what makes followers of Christ stand out in this world. Anyone can serve somebody who's nice and kind and always friendly. When you go and serve your enemy, somebody that doesn't like you and that you don't really care for in the flesh, that's what makes the followers of Christ stand out, okay? So we should be loving, but let's ask the question, what is this really saying? What are they really saying? Again, the main idea here is moralistic, moralistic. So all, all this whole nine weeks, right? It's all about be good, be a good person, do good things, be moral, Focus all the attention of the person-to-person relationships and ignore any vertical or God-directed concerns. So it's always this way. It's always, how can I be a good? How can I be kind? How can I make your life better? Okay? Again, roots of those things, we would probably say, I kind of agree with that. But again, we have to be careful how far we take that. But there's no God-directed concerns. We are not asking, how does God want us to love? It's, you just know how you should be loving. This is why I'm always amazed when somebody says, somebody who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe any of the Christian tenets, would say, you know what, we should just, we should just be loving. And just ask them. If you have somebody in your life who's atheistic, doesn't believe in God, it says, we should be loving. Ask them, where do you get that from? Well, we should just be loving one to another. We should just love our neighbor. I agree. Where do you get that from? Because evolution doesn't teach you that, right? Atheism doesn't teach you that. Why morally should you love another human being who's not going to help you survive? Evolution says survival of the fittest. Like if you will help me survive, then yeah, I can utilize you as a resource, but love is not involved. It's survival that's involved. And so where do we get that from? And that's where, like uh, Dr. Bauckham says, Vody Bauckham says in his study, you can actually tell them, well, you're actually stealing from my worldview. My Bible says love your neighbor as yourself. You're stealing that from, from my worldview. I have a basis for that view. It's in God's word. You have no objective basis for saying love everyone. It's not in your worldview. It doesn't fit in your picture. So again, how we define these things, we have to understand a, a relation to God, God's word, the spirit of God leading us. Another way to understand what they're saying here is something like this. And this is from their words. 
as long as, quote, two people love each other. It really doesn't matter what the Bible says about things like marriage. As long as two people love each other, it really doesn't matter about things, what the Bible says about things like marriage. Now, as we've noted before in our expository apologetic study, that line of thinking does have limitations. That once pointed out, it becomes clear we all have a line of right and wrong when we hear when two people love each other. That phrase, when two people love each other, in one context, people are like, yeah, yep, I'm all for that. But if you change the two people and change that from what you accept to what you wouldn't accept, all of a sudden now you have a line there. Well, no, I'm not for that. I wouldn't be okay with that. Well, then so you do have some form of a basis of right and wrong. It's not just if any two people love each other, it's fine. You have a line there, but why do you draw your line there? Why did you choose that was the place to draw your line? We go to Scripture and we draw our line from Scripture. If you don't have God's Word, what's your reason for that? So again, that phrase is thrown around a lot in progressive Christianity. But again, it's, it's inconsistent. It's not logical. Because there really is no basis for where they draw their lines. And again, trying to be careful here. Gully, the individual that would be progressive does this quite well in his approach to first justifying and then normalizing sinful behavior. Gully does this quite well in his approach to first justifying and then normalizing sinful behavior. This is our culture today. If you've really been around for a while and you've seen kind of some of these trends, if you go back to the 90s, maybe even the 80s before that, but probably in the 90s is when it started becoming more popular, you saw an, a, an outright attempt to justify and normalize sinful behavior. And once it became justified and normalized, now, 30 years later, it's no big deal. It's now, it's normal. That's just how it is. Because there was an effort by individuals to first justify why it's not sinful. This is fine because, well, quote-unquote, two people love each other. Or any other sin you want to talk about. In this case, it's this issue, but any issue. And then not only do you justify it, now you normalize it. It's really no big deal because everybody's doing it. And isn't it funny how really things don't change much from junior high? Not everyone's doing it. Don't you want to be cool? Okay? So we justify and then we normalize. This is how sinful behaviors become commonplace. This is why things that once were seen as you never do now are just another day. It's just accepted now. And those that point that out are the weird ones. You're the weird one if you see that as sinful because that's your problem. Because everyone else thinks it's fine. Now, it's not true. Not, no, everyone else does not think it's fine. It's just the voices that speak the loudest make you think that's the case. And again, at the end of the day, if everyone thinks the behavior is okay, but God's word says it isn't, it really doesn't matter what they say. What matters is what God's word say. We have to go vertical before we can go into the relationships. But again, this is the playbook being used today and has been for some time by those who want to excuse sins they don't agree with as sinful. But again, that line is moving. That's not sinful. That's fine. That's not sinful. That's fine. Oh, but that's wrong. Like murder? Oh, murder's still wrong. Why? Why is that sinful and that not? Again, it's always moving. So what does the Bible say about this? Well, one example would be 1 Timothy 4.12. 1 Timothy 
So this area of, you know, we should care more about love and less about intimacy. Doesn't really matter as long as, you know, two people love each other. It's fine. What does the Bible say? Now, this is written, and this context of this verse is always used. I was in youth ministry, obviously, for a long time. Uh, this is the youth group verse. Like, this is like youth pastor 101, okay? The first devotion you do as a youth pastor is 1 Timothy 4.12. Because it says, let no man despise thy youth. And I, I love that as somebody that worked with students. Because so many people look down on students because they're students. Because they're teenagers. But do you realize that our nation was shaped by men who weren't much older than teenagers? As a staff, we just started reading through a book talking about how our nation was founded upon biblical principles and some examples that we read in just the first week of this. And how individuals, 25, 28, 29-year-old men, had a huge impact on shaping our nation. And so again, don't, we don't look down on somebody merely because they're young. Right? Students and teenagers have shaped not only our world politically as our nation's concerned, but church history is full of young men and women who shaped moves of God. I mean, teenagers that we just finished a book. We read a book last year on Hudson Taylor, who at a young age as a teenager decided that he was going to go to China and do missions work. So again, you can't look down on somebody merely because they're young so what does Paul say as he's talking to Timothy, a younger pastor who's most likely in his 20s? He says this, No man despise thy youth, but, but now here's where we need to stop. This encouragement is not just to younger pastors in the ministry. This encouragement is to all believers. This is just an example of what Paul is sharing with Timothy. It says, Be thou an example of the believers. So among believers, among the church, be an example even among the church. Strive for this. Was Timothy perfect in all these things? Of course not, because he was still a human being, still sinful. But the striving for, we're wanting these things to be true. Be an example of the believers in word, in conversation. What's another word for conversation? Conduct, right? Lifestyle, how you live day to day. So word would be what you say. Conduct is how you live in charity. What's another word for charity? Love. Okay, so how you love, is it important to love? Yeah, and actually we can be an example of how we love one another. In spirit, how are you walking with the Lord, your spiritual well-being, your spiritual life? In faith, as you're trusting the Lord and believing him. And then that last two words, in purity. How we, how we guard our eyes and how we guard our minds and how we guard our hearts from things that would cause us to lust. Now Paul says in another epistle, Flee youthful lust, but pursue these things, faith and love. And so again, it's not a one or the other. It's not purity or love my neighbor as myself. It's again, both. Be an example in conduct, faith, purity, and love. We do not have to make a choice between loving others and calling them to live in agreement with God's design by his grace and for his glory. So what is the approach that progressives will take to justify and normalize sin? And you're going to see how, as I read through these few things, this is very common today. So here's the approach. First of all, you center on the moral goodness and niceness of those in intimate sin. You center on the moral goodness and niceness. Now, I don't know if niceness is a word. 
But I love the way that Kruger put that in his chapter. You center on the moral goodness and niceness of those in intimate sin. Again, we're talking about a very specific type of sin uh, involving intimacy. But again, this could apply to any sin. Gully does this very well in his story. So everything's about stories in progressive Christianity. They're going to be examples of, you know, people that were like this or like that. And it's all about kind of anecdotal evidence. Here's a story to make you feel a little sad, feel a little, you know, oh, I can't believe they put him through that. Right? Remember last time it was a, a female pastor that was being critiqued on her theology. And that was wrong for the leaders to do that because they were abu- usurping or abusing their authority because they were making her feel bad. So it's, again, it's about feelings. It's about emotion. It's about a story. So Gully does this very well. By the way, there's nothing wrong with stories. But we don't base our beliefs in stories or personal experience. We don't have experiential theology. We have biblical theology. If the experience agrees with Scripture, then praise God. But if Scripture contradicts your experience, your experience is wrong. Uh, there's, again, there's some even in the charismatic movement that need to learn that lesson. Well, I don't know what the Bible says. I just know what I experienced. Well, your experience was not of God then. Because if it disagrees with Scripture and contradicts Scripture, it wasn't of God. So again, stories are fine, but Scripture outweighs stories or experience. So Gully tells this story of an older couple, a man and a woman, who were living in sin. Older couple, living in sin, and yet were just so nice. They are, quote, warmly welcoming, and are, quote, kind. Pictures of their grandchildren lining the walls. Gully says their home they created is one of deep love and mutual respect. Here's his words. Nothing about any of that felt like sin to me. Two people living in sin outside of God's way and God's obedience. But because they were nice and welcoming and grandchildren's pictures are on the walls. And they're just so, just so nice. So kind and respectful to each other. And I love that he actually says openly, nothing about any of that felt like sin to me. Reality check. That means nothing. No one cares if you think it's sinful. If I think something's sinful, there's all kinds of things that my flesh would like to do that I would easily go, yeah, that's not sin because I want to do it. But we don't justify it. We go to God's word. And there it is. Sin is not objectively defined from God's word, but by our feelings. If someone is nice and kind and generally a pleasant person, then their sin can't really be all that bad. However, even among progressives, there is a line. If a nice person commits an act that they would deem repulsive, they certainly wouldn't agree that that behavior is now okay because they are nice. It really seems that it's only applied to specific sins. A murderer, who's a really nice guy, but just happened to murder someone, the murder's not okay now, even among progressives. No, that was wrong. Yeah, but they're so nice. They're a great neighbor. Uh, they, they paid their taxes and, you know, they had pictures of their grandchildren on the walls and their, their home was always welcoming. But you know what? They just, they just, well, they just committed murder. But they're so nice. No, a progressive is going to go, that's still wrong. But again, we're not talking about general sin. We're talking about a specific sin. Specific sins that want to be justified in our culture. Declare that obviously God has more important matters to deal with than what individuals someone chooses 
with whom to spend their lives. So what's their approach? Center on the niceness. The second approach is to declare that obviously God has more important matters to deal with than what individuals someone chooses with whom to spend the rest of their lives. Why would God really care about that? God's got so many more important things to worry about than who somebody chooses to spend their life with. So you see the approach. First, we center on the niceness, the the kindness of the person. They're just so nice. But then you imply God's got bigger things on his plate. God's really not concerned about whom someone chooses to spend their life. God's not worried about that. This is what I call the Richard Rohr approach. That God is not all that concerned or upset about Adam and Eve supposedly eating a piece of fruit. They see God as the loving grandfather who is just glad you are happy. He's just this loving, genteel, old grandfather. So what's the problem with this? Well, the Bible paints a completely different picture. The Bible portrays a very different God. One whose holiness is perfect and true. And despite how we feel about it, God is holy and must not be neglected. Again, do you notice this? Well, God's got more important things on his mind than who someone chooses to spend their life with. So why do you care about that? Yet they don't believe God's word inspired, so how do they have any idea what God has on his mind or what God's interested in? They just project these things onto God. But this is the approach. Don't center on that. God is love, and God just wants you to be happy. I've had people justify many things to me because they say things like, well, God would want me to be happy, or God would never want me to be unhappy. Well, God wouldn't want me to stay in an unhappy marriage. Yeah, he would. Yeah, he would. That's not my words. That's his words. And so again, we use that all the time and we project this onto God as though God is like us. He thinks like us and he acts like us. He doesn't. Number three, another way, or rather the approach that these people in this group will use So we center on the niceness of the person or persons. We declare that God has more important things to worry about. And number three, we present, or the progressives, present the fruit first as good and work backwards to the supposed sinful behavior. So present the fruit first as good, the outcome, and then work backwards to the supposed sinful behavior. This is literally the end justifying the means. So we present the fruit first. Like, but look at what this relationship has produced. Look at how much they are growing and loving and kind and all these things. Present the fruit and then work backwards. Gully's argument going back to the elderly couple, which the story kind of apparently goes through his writings on this issue, is that it made sense to them to live together outside of marriage because of financial issues and loneliness. So again, what does Gully do? He plays on our feelings. He doesn't go to the truth. He goes to our feelings. If someone was to suggest that those things uh, do not change the truth of sin, that basically we need to go on our feelings, and that should change how we view sin. If anyone suggests, no, 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 no. I'm sorry they're in that situation, but that's still, that's still sin. Well, you just aren't very loving. You just aren't very kind. Because obviously you would see the situation and go, okay, in this case, I can see how that's better. We should overlook sin if the situation justifies the need for sin. These are are Gully's words. We should overlook sin if the need justifies the sin. 
again, can we use this with murder? I promise you, some of you in this room, in your mind, have justified murder. <laughs> Lord, I know I shouldn't, but please, because, man, this person, you see the silliness of this? Nobody would do that. Oh, well, but because it's this kind of a sin, we justify it. I love what Michael Kruger writes here. Moreover, Christians should challenge the underlying idea that difficult circumstances justify sinful behavior. Difficult circumstances and situations never justify sinful behavior. Yes, I understand. In this case, there were some culturally acceptable reasons to live in sin. That does not justify the sin. Does that mean these people are beyond forgiveness? No, of course not. Repentance, seeking after Christ, these things can still happen. As long as there's breath in their lungs, they can be forgiven. We don't argue that. But we don't justify the continuing in sinful behavior because, well, it just is easier this way. I've had younger couples sit with me in marriage counseling and say things like that. Well, we decided we were going to live together for a little bit because it's just easier rather than having two different things and whatever else. And what do you think about that? Well, you can do that, but that would be sinful. Well, yeah, but you don't understand the situation. I'd have to move here. Yep, yeah, I understand it's difficult. Do it anyway. Because that's really what you should be striving for. And again, it doesn't mean that people can't be forgiven and restoration and all those things happen, but we don't justify sin because of difficult circumstances. Number four. We've got this one and then one more. How they approach this to justify and normalize sin. Present those who stand for biblical truth and against sinful behaviors as cruel or unloving. In Gully's story, all this older couple, and it seems as though they were involved in a church uh, that they were in together. So Gully, this couple, and then apparently a church elder. So in Gully's story, a church elder approached this situation of the couple living in sin. When Gully refers to the church elder, he is portrayed as critical, unduly upset, and one who roundly condemned. So the elder that's concerned that these two people are living in sin went to Gully and shared this concern, because apparently they were in the church together, and instantly he's critiqued as critical, condemning, unruly upset, or unduly upset. In the progressive's mind, the problem is not the ones living in sin, but the ones that have the issue with that choice. But again, is that surprising? We just talked about Gully's view on authority, and his view on authority is there is no authority, just do whatever you want, so anyone that challenges that is automatically wrong. The progressive movement fails to admit the truth that sin harms people, and that's the greatest problem here. This is why sin is addressed in Scripture so heavenly, because God knows what is best. And when we live in sin, we are creating situations that cause physical, emotional, and spiritual harm to ourselves and others. And that's why God says, don't live in sin. Don't commit sin. Not because God's in heaven so fragile that if we sin, he's not God anymore. No, he knows that if we live in sin and we give over to sinful behaviors, it's going to do us harm. Emotionally, physically, spiritually. And he loves us so much, he's crying out, don't do it. Don't give in. Don't go there. And God puts those conditions around us because he wants the best for us. 
And who better to know what's best for us than the one that created us? And so again, why do we avoid sin? Not so I can keep God happy and not lose my salvation. I avoid sinful behaviors and I cry out to God when I commit a sinful behavior and I ask for repentance because I want to live in the fullness of the abundant life of John 10.10. Not so that I can go, man, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, but that God is glorified and his grace, as Ephesians says, is on display for all generations. And so again, we have to think of this the right way. It's not God is this mean, vindictive father who doesn't want you to have any fun. We need to define and stop defining fun by the way the world defines it. It's not fun. It's bondage. I'm always amazed when Christians come to me and say things like, well, yeah, I do this, but liberty in Christ. I have the liberty to do this. And they've overstepped bounds and things that are something they can do in liberty and do in moderation, they now do in excess. And I'll pick on drinking alcohol as an example. The Bible says that Paul tells Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. And I've met Christians that go, well, see, we can drink wine. And now they drink it in excess unto drunkenness. And they go, but it's fine, liberty. No, no. And then they'll tell you, but this is freedom. I'm free. No, you're in bondage. No, no, I'm free in Christ. Like, I can do this. That's fine. You're in bondage. Again, we have to be so careful here because the world and our flesh are pulling us into these things to justify and normalize. And then we look at those who have standards and convictions and go, what's your problem? You're just not free in Christ. You just don't understand liberty. No, we're fine. Scripture says these things. You're indulging your sinful behavior because your flesh wants that. So again, why is sin so damaging? Because it damages us. It hurts us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And it harms those that you love and that love you. And it will always do that. You can justify it. You can normalize it. It will never change. It will always bring death. James tells us that. Death of relationships. Death of of opportunities that God may bring into our lives. It's just destructive. So number five, lastly. What's their approach? How do they justify normalized sin? This one is the most ironic to me. Point out that Jesus is obviously on your side of the issue. What? You know that Jesus that you don't really believe half of what he said? That Jesus. Point out that Jesus is obviously on your side of the issue. The most ridiculous argument due to the progressive's lack of seeing Scripture as inspired. So how can you definitively say if Jesus is on your side or not? Yet Gully draws on the stories of Jesus, quote, being harder on the religious than the sinners. Or the story of the woman that washed Jesus' feet, whose sins were many. Gully actually uses that as an example of Jesus being okay with her lifestyle. Well, it's fine, because Jesus said her sins were many. Is it true that Jesus loves and receives sinners? Of course. But in the case of the woman, her sins were forgiven because she didn't come in rebellion and living in sin. She repented seeking forgiveness of her sins. Luke chapter 7. So again, do you see how easily it is to just flip it? Well, Jesus says he's all for sinners. No, 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 no. He's, he wants sinners to come to him in repentance and he can restore them and forgive them. But he doesn't encourage them to continue in sin. What does he tell the woman at the well? He says, yeah, you've admitted it. No, that's the one where he says, you've admitted you have no husband. And the man you've been with isn't your husband. And the last so many guys aren't your husband. He identifies her sin as wrong. The woman caught in the act of adultery comes before Jesus, is thrown at his feet. John chapter 8, he begins to write in the dirt. People pick up stones to stone her. He says, you without sin cast the first stone. 
They all realize they're sinful. They put their stones down. He goes over. He says, hey, where are your accusers? She said, they must have gone. He says, then I don't condemn you either. Get up and sin no more. See, he does receive sinners, but he never condones sin. Why? Because sin is damaging. Do you think the woman that came at the well was happy and satisfied and fulfilled in her sin? Of course not. Because the minute he said, the water I give you, you'll never drink from again. She said, please give me that. Like you can just hear the brokenness in that story. So again, it's amazing to me that these progressives will use scripture to try to justify Jesus being okay with sin. Once again, progressives miss the point that loving someone is not blindly agreeing with whatever they do is okay because they are good or nice people. We all need grace and forgiveness for our sins. And as followers of Christ, we are not to live in sin, but strive to honor the Lord in all that we say and do. We cannot justify justify and normalize sin because we want to act out a behavior or do something or because culture says this. And I'll, I'll share this because I do think this is something that speaks to this issue. I remember I was teaching on a Wednesday night on the issue of homosexuality. And I, it was with the teens. And I taught on that and, and spoke to the reality of what God says about that sin. And I, I told him, honestly, I said, we've all fallen short. This is one sin, but the Bible lists many sins that we need to avoid. And all sin leads to death apart from Christ and separation from him in hell. And so I spoke to that issue. And this was back probably 2010, 11, somewhere back there. And one of our students came up to me and she said, you know, I have a lot of friends at school that are, that are gay and that say they're gay and stuff. And they're just so nice. Like, they're so friendly. They're, like, they love me and I love them. We're just good friends. I can't tell them how their living is sinful because I just can't believe that somebody like that, that nice and that kind, would go to hell. And then they said, because of that sin. And I stopped them. I said, no, no, no. Nobody goes to hell because of one sin. We go to hell because we're all sinners. Apart from God, who need forgiveness. All sin sends us to hell, apart from Christ. When I receive Christ, all my sin is forgiven. No one sin sends us to hell. But do you see her point? But they're just so nice. Morality is not justifying of sin. You can be a great person, but apart from Christ, you're dead and on your way to hell. Equally so, forgiven believers who choose to give in to sinful temptations still will suffer the consequence of those choices, and there can still be forgiveness. It doesn't justify it. It doesn't make it okay. But again, this is something that's been going around in our culture for a long time. But it just, you know, and this is any sin. And if you've raised children or teenagers or you have grandchildren and you've tried to teach them right from wrong, and they'll say more or less, but how can it be bad if it feels good or if it helps someone or if it does something good, how can it be wrong? We don't justify the sin by the ends or what comes out of it, we realize, no, no, it's still wrong regardless of what's produced from it. Now, can God use those things? Of course he can. God works all things together for good. And if there's an individuals that decide to live together before they get married and they have a child, is that child a blessing? Yes. A child is a blessing. Does that mean what they did was okay? No. And so God can use those things, and he does this all the time. But we don't start off with the idea, well, let's sin and make sure we sin as much as possible and then let God figure it out in the end. And that's kind of the progressive mindset. It's like, just leave people alone. Let them do their thing. And meanwhile, they're damaging themselves, 
They're hurting themselves physically, emotionally, spiritually, and they're separated from that relationship that Christ wants with them. And so again, just in this issue, we see this over and over again in our world. So what do we do? How do we, how do we speak against this? It's the gospel. Just give them the gospel. Don't center on one sin. Talk about that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, I've sinned. You've sinned. We don't center on one sin. We center on sin and the need of forgiveness and what the gospel brings into our lives. For those that are followers of Christ, as we said this morning, that have betrayed Christ and denying him as Lord of their lives and living in their own way, what do we do? We go to the gospel. We repent and we remind ourselves of the grace of God and we trust God to give us restoration and to pick us up out of that and set us on the right path. Why? So he is glorified. And so again, in this area, I know this is something that is very prevalent in our culture today. We justify it. We normalize it. Jesus is okay with it. God has other things on his plate. He wouldn't be concerned about that. What does it matter anyway? It matters because God's word is God's word and he is creator. And if he says, this is how we are to live, then this is how we are to live. And not because God is a vindictive God who just wants to keep us under his thumb because he knows what's best for us. He knows how to live that abundant life and he gives that to us freely in Christ. And so I pray this is encouragement to you. Again, if nothing else, to guard your heart and mind against this teaching, to know truth and to be able to speak truth in other people's lives and to see maybe when you're hearing things, oh, I I hear that approach now. I see the strategy of the enemy. By the way, this is not a new strategy, right? Genesis 3, it's all the same thing. It's manipulating God's word. It's it's trying to pull out God's word to justify sin, to justify prideful wants and desires. And then when we find ourselves face down in the sin, we realize we've gone farther than we ever wanted. We've, We've given up more than we ever meant to give up. It's cost us more than we ever thought we'd pay. We're left broken and shameful. And yet the amazing thing is, this drives me crazy, is that time will go by and you'll be tempted to sin. And what'll happen? You'll actually think for a moment, oh, that's kind of appealing. Completely forgetting what sin cost you before. What does the Bible said? You know what we're compared to? Like a dog returning to its vomit. I'm not going to go down that road too far, but I have a dog and I've watched that. Nasty. I've never looked at that and went, well, it looks kind of appealing. I bet that tastes pretty good. No. And that's the picture God says when we, as saved individuals, look back at our sin and go, that was kind of appealing. Foolishness, right? It's foolish. But our flesh is convincing us, oh, no, 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 you need that. So what do you do? You stand, Romans 6, I'm dead to sin. I've been crucified with Christ. So again, we trust in that. So any comments, questions, or thoughts before we dismiss in a word of prayer this evening? Any comments, questions, or thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
Yeah. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, I think something he said in our expository apologetic study was that when we choose to not acknowledge sin in someone's life that we care for in a loving, gracious way, we're not talking about, you know, condemning, but coming alongside somebody and saying, hey, this is sin, this is a problem, you, we need to deal with this. When we choose to not do that under the guise of, well, I love them and I don't want to lose that relationship with them, we're actually idolizing the relationship with the person over obedience to God's word. And we're actually saying, I, I want that relationship and what it gives me more than I want you to live in the fullness of who Christ is. And to me, that was so eye-opening that we do that often, where we idolize what this relationship gives me as greater value than, no, it may cost me the relationship, but in the end, you hear truth and you're going to be better off for this. So I'm willing to sacrifice the relationship so that you can benefit from this. So again, it's a whole different mind shift away from truly serving one another and not just looking for what benefits me, per se. Absolutely. Any other comments, questions, or thoughts around this idea of tonight's study? Yes. 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 Yep. Absolutely. No matter whether you're getting along with your spouse or not, love them anyway, right? Absolutely. Anyone else before we close in prayer? All right. Well, let's pray and we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we come before you tonight, Lord, and, and first and foremost, we are so thankful for your grace because there's no one in this room, myself included, that hasn't needed desperately to call upon your name for grace and forgiveness, Lord, not just in salvation, but as we walk in this world, as we live this life, Lord, First John 1, 9 is, like, is a call to daily hand-washing, daily cleansing, where we cry out and we say, Lord, refine me again and renew a right thinking in me. Lord, cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Cleanse me of my sin that I would live in a way that would honor you. And Lord, we've all needed that. We all need it, and we will continue to need it because we're in this flesh and we're in a fallen world. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help all of us to know that nothing we said tonight is an attack against any person. It's not about going against a person. It's the teaching. It's the condoning of sinful behavior, which, Lord, the reason it should bother us when that happens is because it harms people. Like people are being led astray. People are being told that they're fine and living in sin. And, Lord, it's, it's hurting them. They may not see it. People say, well, yeah, but they're happy and they feel fine. Well, it may not harm them physically or emotionally as they see it. But it is harming them spiritually because it's putting a division between them and the Lord. It's, it's hindering what God desires to do in their lives as far as them experiencing the abundant and full life. The joy of the Lord that is possible. 
And Lord, ultimately, and in the worst case scenarios, it's costing them their eternal salvation. It's leading them into a separation from God that will last through eternity. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would walk this out in our lives, that we would be balanced. It's not about coming after a person or an individual, but yet, Lord, sharing the gospel with those individuals that need to hear truth. It's not about we're better than anyone because we've all fallen short. But, Lord, I pray that we would, even those of us in this room right now, Lord, if there's anyone here that is living in a situation right now with unrepentant sin in their life, it's that secret sin that they know about and you know about, but no one else knows about. Lord, I pray that they would confess that before you. Find that grace and that mercy that restores and redeems. Lord, even for followers of Christ, it's not that we need to get saved again or we didn't lose our salvation, Lord, but that fellowship has been hindered. So I pray that you, by the working of the Holy Spirit, would draw us unto conviction, unto repentance. And Lord, again, so that you can be glorified in all of this. Help us, Lord, to live in a way that honors you. Help us to strive to sin not. That's our goal, to sin not. But Lord, thank you for verse 2, that if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so thank you, Lord, that we strive to live in a way that honors you, but as human beings in this flesh, as Paul says in Romans 7, that that we want to do, we don't do, and that that we don't want to do, we do. And so I'm so thankful that despite all of that, Romans 8, 1 says that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so thank you, Lord, for that gift of grace and salvation. Lord, help us to walk this out this week again, just to honor you and all that we say and do. And we thank you for your grace in our lives, your mercy and your word that goes before us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.